Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, glowworms, and welcome to The Vanity Project with me, Vanity Von Glow. We are into our second season of Convivial Conversation, and both producer Nathan and myself are so grateful to all of you for tuning in each week for these new episodes. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. We're jumping from last week's Birmingham guest across the Irish Sea to easily one of the most recognised and beloved drag artists in the world today, the fabulous Panty Bliss. For anyone who doesn't know, I love Ireland. I've lived with several Irish miscreants in my time. Some of my best friends in the world have been Irish, and I can't count the number of times I've gone to Dublin myself to perform with my trusty musical director, Duncan Day. Every time I visit the fair city, I come away feeling a little bit lighter, somehow refreshed, and given the level seven hangovers that I've endured on the flight back, that is quite a miracle. I don't get all romantical about cities and places particularly, but I really love Dublin. In today's episode, Panty tells us about the changing face of Ireland and the two generation-defining referenda on abortion and equal marriage which took place there within the last decade. We also chat about her role as a national treasure and whether or not a drag queen can maintain their bite and be on morning television at the same time. A bit later on, we're joined by London events promoter Denim Spur for our Queen's Corner segment. But before we start, we'd love you to click the subscribe button if you haven't already, because how else will news of upcoming episodes reach your wee ears? Drag queen Panty Bliss broke the internet in February 2014 with a speech given at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin about homophobia in Ireland. She had caused a stir on the Saturday night show on RTE, which is the Irish state broadcaster, when she alleged that some journalists in the Irish media might be homophobic. Now, a few of these journalists threatened RTE with legal action and with little to no resistance, RTE used €85,000 funds to pay off the complainants and issued a public apology. But there was just one problem. The journalist accused kind of were homophobic. Certainly an argument could be made that they were. They described gay marriage as a kind of satire, said equality must take second place to the common good. So when the broadcaster paid out rather than fighting the claims in court, the narrative became about free speech and the appropriate use of public funds. 
Now, the whole incident has been dubbed Pantygate and was addressed in Panty's speech at the Abbey Theatre around that time. And if you haven't seen it, do Google it. It's called Panty's Noble Call. And it is a wonderful rhetorical musing about what it means to be oppressed in the 21st century. I find the word oppressed gets bandied about a fair bit in this day and age, but Panty's always very eloquent and a thoughtful speaker and makes some great points. She is, like any drag queen worth their salt, a reliably funny and warm stage presence. You can catch her live performances from the Soho Theatre in London on streaming services, as well as her brilliant documentary, The Queen of Ireland, which charts both her life and the success of the referendum for marriage equality in 2015. So despite a few homophobic journalists, Panty and the gays got the last laugh. She's here with me today from Dublin. Hello, Panty. Hi. I'm really uh, happy that you've come on to have a chat with me today. I admire you a lot. I think you're just such a valuable communicator for our people. Well, worse things have been said about me, so I'll take that. <laughs> I bet they have. I was thinking that in Ireland, you've had two like striking referendum results in, in the past five or six years. There was the turning over of the abandoned abortion and then obviously the legalization of same-sex marriage. And that kind of tells a story of a modern Ireland that some people wouldn't have expected. Yeah, um, I think a lot of people have a perception of Ireland that's sort of trapped in the 1950s or something. Um, and, and that's often particularly true sometimes, ironically, of actual Irish people who emigrated um, from Ireland, you know, the 50s and 60s and that, and their view of Ireland is often quite trapped in this time period. Um, mm -hmm. And But Ireland, you know, has changed dramatically um, over the last couple of, you know, decades, especially. Um, but, you know, it's been like a deep transformative change. Um, you know, I, I was a student in Dublin in the mid 80s and it was absolutely <laughs> grim. Um, and I ran out of here in 1990 and never expected to be going back to Ireland because at the time I felt Ireland, you know, didn't want me. Um, you know, homosexual acts were only decriminalized in 1993, you know, while I was away mm -hmm. abroad. So, you know, I had spent my whole college years, you know, fucking illegally. <laughs> so a criminal. Uh, yeah. And um, so so the, the sort of change that happened um, has been really dramatic um, and it's been very fast in a way. I mean, relative, um, you know, that kind of deep social change normally takes a very long time and um, didn't. I think there's a number of reasons why that is. Ireland being a small country is part of it, um, that I think it's easier to sort of change minds and that over a short period of time. Um, but it's interesting that we're having this discussion now um, because um, over the last few days, um, the issue of homophobia and that has come roaring back to the fore in Ireland because um, two men were brutally murdered. It appears to be um, through a guy who was planning to murder a lot of people. Yeah. And he was meeting them through Grinder, And it happened in a small town in the west of Ireland, in Sligo. Um, so it's been really shocking. And just a few days before that, um, a guy here in Dublin was just randomly attacked in the street and called faggot and very badly beaten up. So it's gotten a lot of attention suddenly in the last few days. And a lot of the conversation has been, you know, we thought this was all over and sorted and done with, um, especially with our marriage equality referendum in 2015. Um, but of course, um, you know, it's impossible to 
stamp out all pockets of homophobia and to change every single person's mind. And it only takes one or two people to do horrible things to sort of um, bring the whole thing back up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I will say one thing about that referendum. Um, you know, Ireland, unlike the UK, is very used to having referendums. We have a lot of them. Some years yeah. we have, you know, two or three. Um, and so unlike the UK, <laughs> we know what to expect um, and how these things go. And, and it's very rare for a referendum um, to end up being actually about the simple thing that's written on the piece of paper. They always become these bigger conversations um, often about things that aren't actually on the ballot paper at all. And they always become divisive. Um, I mean, a good example is that, you know, a number of years ago, we had one about children's rights. And of course, who's not in support of rights for children? And so you know, <laughs> polling in the beginning was like 98% yes, or whatever it was. Um, but the system is here that legally, um, both sides of the discussion must be given equal weight during the campaign. Um, right. The legal requirement, and that sounds good on paper. Well, isn't that fair? Um, so, you know, the amount of time given on, you know, RTR version of the BBC um, has to be equal to both sides of a referendum argument and so on. Um, but then that creates these crazy situations, for example, in a, in a referendum about children's rights, where they have to go out and find the weirdos and the freaks who are against yeah. it. Uh, and give them yeah. equal time on television, on radio, in newspaper columns and all of that. And they are allowed to say whatever they want, you know, in, during the campaign. And so they end up throwing up all sorts of crazy things and they persuade some people that, oh, my God, this is something terrible and dangerous or whatever. And so by the time children's referendum happened, it only, you know, it passed with, I think it was in the high 50s percentage. Um, and that happens with every single referendum. Um, things that aren't that the referendum isn't about at all get thrown up um and that happened of course during our marriage equality referendum um and so th th there are risky and dangerous ways to to make policy uh, you might not get the answer you want um the the process is unpleasant like during the marriage referendum you know you had teenagers going to school and there are posters all the way saying that gay people are dangerous to children or whatever you know um yeah so it's it's pretty unpleasant um but if you do get the answer you want, it's by far the most powerful way to do it. Um, because despite the fact that there are still, of course, homophobes in Ireland, there are homophobes in every culture. Um, despite that, I think the Irish queer community does feel very secure in its place in Irish society. You know, we are the only country in the world that knows to a percentage point what the rest of the country thinks about us queers, um, because the whole country voted on us. Um, you yeah. know, and every granny voted, every postman, every bus driver, every just everybody voted, your neighbor, your mammy, you know, your teacher, your students, everybody voted on it. And so it's very much a finished and done question here. Um, you know, it's never going to be brought back up. Um, even if a terribly right wing government got in, they couldn't roll back on it like they could in every other country um, because they'd have to have another referendum and change the constitution again. And that's just, you know, not going to happen. Yeah. So. Um, I, I think it played that referendum played a large role in in the deep change that happened in Ireland. We think here, or we describe the you know we had the Brexit referendum, and I'm from Scotland as well, so we had the independence referendum, and people are very anxious about the idea of referenda here because they are so divisive, um, I and mean, that's why we don't have them very often at all. Um, 
I've quoted you like so many times, or it's a rough quote because I, I'm not sure I've had it right verbatim, but in your Queen of uh, Ireland documentary, as the campaign for same-sex marriage is successful, they're celebrating and everyone's really happy. And I think a journalist asks you, what would you say, Panty, who's been at the forefront of this campaign, what would you say to the people who voted against equal marriage? And your response is, and this is what I, I always tell people, you say, I just hope that in a few years they realise like they didn't actually have anything to be frightened about. You know, the world's not going to end. And I think that 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 reaching over that conciliatory approach after a period of division is so so essential like it's 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 something that i think we need more of and i was wondering is that the kind of approach that you've always had as a as a soul or is that something that comes with with the wisdom of age i mean i mean it's a case-by-case -case situation in a way um i think in a situation like that um there's no absolutely no point in remaining argumentative, you know, argumentative um, after you've won and all of that. Um, also, I think if you want to get people to vote for you, so beforehand, you really do need to, to, to reach out and, you know, try and explain. Of course, there are some lost causes. And when people are calling for you to be murdered or something, you know, mm. there's no point in trying to reach across to, to those people who will, whose minds will never be changed. Um, so, you know, but in general, um, especially when it comes to things like referendum campaigns, when you need people to trust you and, and, and vote, um, you know, for your community, um, you absolutely have to do that. And that's not always easy, um, but it, it's absolutely necessary if you want things to change. Um, I mean, there is a limit to that tolerance. Like if somebody is literally calling, you know, for you to be eradicated or whatever, there's no point in, trying to you know, reach a hand of friendship across there. Um, but, but most people um, are reachable. Um, and especially today, you know, because online and that you know, debate becomes so um, kind of aggressive and um, all or nothing in a way. Yeah. And it's very easy on Twitter or whatever to treat the person who you disagree with as, be, as only being a person you disagree with, that, you know, that, the, that they don't have any other facets. Um, and I think, you know, in, in a face-to-face, -face, in face-to-face -face exchanges, um, that's much more difficult to, to see people like that. And um, so you might disagree with them with this, but then you're also aware that, you know, that they're smart or that they're nice to their mother or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so I think there is a danger always with online stuff to reduce everything to just simple black and white. So there's not very little, you know, room for subtlety. You know, but, um, you know, I, I don't remember the exact quote myself, but I remember I know what you're talking about. And I, yeah, I did basically say, um, you know, I don't hate them. I think that they voted no um, for their own concerns. They had concerns or whatever. Um, but I, I also believe that the vast majority of those concerns were groundless and baseless. And I, you know, I would hope that in time after we've had marriage equality, that those people would see that, oh, those concerns were groundless and baseless. And, and then be retrospectively happy about the results. And, and you know, you know I, I was conscious of that because I'm very aware of how referendum debates go and how divisive they can become. So um, I honestly do believe that there are, well, in fact, I know some um, people who voted no and have now changed their mind or whatever. It's also, um, 
Yeah, you know, like we reran the, re- the, the referendum today, the result would be even higher. It was already a landslide, but it would be higher because we've now had X number of what, six years or something of the gays getting married and all of the things that we were warned about, the sky falling in, you know, whatever, it didn't happen. Um, and now he can see that all of those things that were whipped up during the campaign were, were just groundless fears. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm confident that if we ran the result again today, um, it would be even higher than it was at the time. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I don't want to be hating on people forever. I want to give them an opportunity to sort of snap out of the, the, the fears that were instilled yeah. in by bad actors during the campaign. So, um, yeah. yeah. That's that's something that I, I've, I keep thinking that themes come up in the conversations that I'm having on the podcast in particular. We had the Labour MP, Jess Phillips, on the other day and uh, and also the Scottish comedian a few weeks before that, Karen Dunbar. And both times it came up the idea that we need to learn to differentiate between good faith actors and bad faith actors, because there are people who who thrive on disrupting honest debate. You know, yep. there will be some old some old ladies in you know, in Ireland who would have, you know, some heartfelt concerns about gay marriage. And then there will also be people whose heartfelt concerns are being exploited by, um, you know, by by nefarious people. And and this happens a lot online when, you know, when people I don't like the word trolling because it doesn't quite cover it. But when uh, online debate really does just become can become like a cesspool sometimes. And I was thinking during the pandemic, that was the only way people were communicating. So sometimes it felt really antagonistic to not be able to sit face to face or go down to Panty Bar, your bar that you have in Dublin and just have a drink with people and remind yourself that we're all whole people, not just avatars yeah. for a belief, you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is true that there are a lot of, you know, there are, there are, there are plenty of people whose life experience means that they do have genuine concerns about things that they, that, that I would say you've absolutely no need to be concerned about that. Um, and, you know, and gay marriage is one of them. Um, but it is also true that there are plenty of people who are willing to exploit, you know, someone with limited life experience and, you know, genuinely held, held concerns. And so you do have to differentiate between the two. Um, and, and, you know, there, there is a truth that letting people know you, um, is beneficial. I mean, you know, when I grew up in Ireland in the seventies, um, people had all sorts of weird, crazy ideas about queer people because they genuinely believed that they didn't know any queer people. And yeah. so if you don't know any queer people, it's very easy to hold these weird ideas or prejudices about them. You know, if someone tells you that the gays eat babies, well, if you don't know any gays, you know, well, maybe you'll believe that. Um, and, and I think part of the reason why Ireland has changed so dramatically in regards to these kind of things is because now it's, you know, Ireland's small and it is basically impossible to live in, on this island, no matter how no, small no. your village is, no matter how limited your social interactions are, and not know some queers. Um, and so it's much harder to hold these weird ideas and prejudices about queer people when you know them and they're cutting your hair or selling you stamps in the post office or, you know, whatever it is. So, um, so I think letting people get to know you is always important. But again, there is a limit to that. It's important for, you know, when you're trying to persuade people who have genuinely held concerns, um, it's absolutely pointless though, really, when you're dealing with a bad faith actor, somebody who's, you know, willing to exploit 
people who have those concerns or who is arguing in bad faith anyway and who really wants to just eradicate you or whatever. So, um, you know, it's a balancing act, really. But in general, if you want to get anywhere, you need to bring other people with you. So it's worth a shot. I was in Ireland uh, a few months ago. I was filming a show for Amazon Prime called The Three Drinkers. It's like a travel show, food and beverage stuff. And they had me come over as a guest. And we went from, I arrived in a, in Derry, and then we went through Donegal down to Westport Galway, down to Limerick. Um, and every single, I was in drag for the whole thing every day. You know, they had me doing silly activities. And so, you know, including going out on a trawling boat, to 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 fish mussels off the coast and stuff and every single person who i encountered to a fault was just delighted to see a drag queen and was up for having a laugh and all of that and i was thinking that because of how prominent you were during the that that particular period about seven years ago i mean a lot of the people for seeing me walking around Galway in the middle of the day looking at cladder rings and whatever else they'd been primed for that because they already knew who panty bliss is right so they they were comfortable and it's it's mind opener when you have people who are drag queens on television talking about real people's lives yeah um i mean yeah i mean uh you know drag is so popular now more popular than it ever has been oh, yeah. ever. um so yeah people aren't you know people get it when they see it nowadays in a way that they might not have you know 30 years ago yeah um you know, they understand what you know what the purpose of a drag queen is sort of um so you know that's absolutely true um you know the, the world has changed and all of that so and you know and i've been to prides and so on and done my show and up and down the length of the of this country so yeah you know and, and galway in particular is full of nuts <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Every so you're right to say like drag is everywhere now, and it's a it's a it's very fashionable. And I I I totally understand why. I mean, you know, it was interesting to me to do drag when I started like 13 years ago. So why wouldn't it be interesting to the kids now? And now there's less, it's less unusual, and and it's in a way easier. And there's a whole ecosystem around it. But I do wonder, do you think that drag is still a radical act? given how it's, it's so popular, is, is it as subversive now? Um, probably not in a way. I mean, you know, I, I see the enormous popularity of drag now and I have, I have sort of mixed feelings about it. Um, mm -hmm. On the one hand, um, you know, I got into drag because it was underground and transgressive and punk and, you know, two fingers to everybody and everything, um, you know, and because it was stupid fun. Um, you know, people often say to me, you know, why did you get into drag? And I'm like, you know, when I was 20 years old, the job was literally, you were paid to run around a nightclub getting really drunk and be the life and soul of the party. And like, what 20 yeah. year old does not want that job? Falling over and yeah. Yeah, so what the question is, why did I get into drag? Why the fuck did you not get into drag? You know, uh -huh. and but um, I was also into it because it was underground and and because I was angry and pissed off in a way, and, and drag was a way of just sort of, in a fun way, screaming at everybody. Um, yeah. You know, um, you know, you know, because at that time, being queer really was, a, you know, a, a, you know, underground in, in a way, but, and also um, certainly living in Ireland at that time, you know, 
Um, it was hidden and unwanted and pushed aside and all of that. And being drag is, you know, drag is very much not being pushed aside. It's very much, you know, not being meek and quiet. And so, I, I, you know, that was all the reasons I got into it. And at that time, I mean, it's, it's slightly different in the UK, um, but but similar, um, but it's more so here at, at that time. Nobody got into drag thinking this is a career. Like I never, I think it, I was probably doing drag full time for about 15 years before I thought, oh, maybe this is my job, you know, because yeah. I always assumed I'd have to get a real job one day because this, A, it didn't feel like a job and B, um, you know, there was, there was always only ever like, unless you lived in, you know, Brighton or Las Vegas, um, there was only ever one famous drag queen. In every town, yeah. So, you know, Lily Savage, um, Danny LaRue, Great Cork. Of course, they're all Irish, British ones, you know. Um, Danny LaRue, <laughs> Savage is practically Irish. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, RuPaul. You know, there's one at any time. So people didn't get into drag thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know, be able to buy a flat, you know, and get a car or whatever. That's not, you know, people didn't get into it with those reasons. And so now it is remarkable to me to see you know, lots of, you know, baby drags and, they think, oh, well, I'm going to be rich and famous. And I'm going to do it through drag. You know, to me, that is the biggest yeah. change. It's now seen as well, a career choice. And, and in order for it to be that, of course, it's had to be sort of somewhat defanged and made more palatable to mainstream audiences and all of that. And so, and, and that is part of my worries. I do think it has lost a lot of its kind of radical uh, fuck you edge um, in order to be this successful. Um, and, and I, you know, benefited from that too. Although I do also worry when something is this popular, this fashionable, this cool, this trendy, you know, in, in five years time, will it be considered yeah. math and so whatever yeah. and then become harder for people who've always been in the business <laughs> to continue. Yeah. So these are the things. However, having said all of that, and, and I think that's all true. I think in general, it is less transgressive, uh, less punk, and um, having said all of that, um, you know, if I go into some open mic night in some random gay bar and I see some, you know, 19 year old kid up on the stage wearing a dress he stole from his sister and a cheap wig he got from China um, on Alibaba or whatever, and, and he's throwing himself around to an Ariana Grande song, living his Ariana Grande fantasy um, and all of that, you know, that kid may never have had a political thought in his life, but mm -hmm. that doesn't really matter because what he's doing is still a radical act, whether he even appreciates it or not. Um, it is still to this day, a radical act to say, fuck all of your conventions about how I'm supposed to act, how I'm supposed to behave, what kind of music I'm meant to like, what I'm meant to be wearing, how I'm meant to be presenting myself. You know, to say, fuck all of that. I'm going to get up in public wearing a dress, absolutely living my best life, you know, being Ariana Grande, um, loving Ariana Grande unironically in public, not worrying about... Um, you know, the people who tried to <laughs> bully or sneer this stuff out of me when I was, you know, in school, um, you know, I'm going to take all the sneering and, you know, gay, you know, quips that were made about me when I was in school. And I'm going to take all of that stuff. I'm going to make it 
bigger and brassier and louder than you can possibly imagine. And I'm going to turn it back on you, you know, as power and strength and queer superhero-ness, you know, and giving them all the glittered finger. So although I do worry that mainstream drag has in many ways been defanged and polished and made easily digestible for the huge thousands of numbers of 17-year-old girls who were at the traveling, you know, RuPaul show, whatever. At the same time, somehow drag does retain this kernel of, you know, queer, radical, you know, politics at, at its center. So, yeah, um, I, I worry about some of that stuff, but I also have hope about that stuff too. I remember seeing, I can't remember what it's called and, you know, no disrespect to the people involved in its publication, but there is like a, a teen magazine. Like when I was young, well, <laughs> in fact, before, before my time, there were things like Bunty magazine and, you know, like girls magazines yeah. for young teens. And yeah. I know there'll be like, I don't know, I don't know, Teen Vogue and all that stuff now. Anyway, there is a drag one for this and it's all about drag queens. And I saw it advertised online. And Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I totally understand why drag is exciting to teenagers because it's about self-creation for them. And, and it's also, you can create a self that is armored and, and the things that you don't like about yourself can be all the things you've just said. But at the, at the same time, it did make me think, I was like, oh, fuck, is it time to get off this train? Like <laughs> when the teenage girls have got a magazine for drag queens. But then, uh, you know, I realized that 
obviously there are shows the teenage girls love to go and watch and you know they're they all love bimini and all the all the Vue girls and you know fabulous like i i have a lot of respect for many of the girls who i know and have worked with and stuff but my show is different from that it's not for teenage girls now the teenage girl might stumble into my show from time to time but and it's not that my show is enormously adult but there is a sort of cutting tone and a, a thick skinnedness to it and also kind of more mature musical taste and stuff like that so it there's enough audience to go around right yeah no there absolutely is and you know you have brought up the rue thing and um you know it, it's a fabulous tv show that people love but it is a tv show it's not about drag it's about yeah a particular kind of TV. drag that they can compete against yeah. each other and, and most of my very fav- favorite um, drag performers would never even get past any the first audition round stage for that show because they wouldn't know what to do with them because you yeah. know the stuff they do and the things they're interested in aren't able to be put in competition you know the kind of competition yes. they do. so so it's a very fun a drag show it has given a lot of opportunities to a lot of you know drag queens a lot of talented queens um so all good but it, it isn't the sum total of what drag is and and i think the problem comes when it, when people start to view it as 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 such um there is definitely audience for all kinds of drag drag's natural audience isn't teenage girls and that is a new phenomenon that is yeah you know, amazing to me i i'm not going to knock it because why shouldn't teenage girls enjoy it too um yeah you know good for them um but it, it certainly isn't the natural audience of the drag tradition that i came from um i always i always think that you know it's like when people think that simon cowell is a music mogul and i'm like no he's a tv mogul yeah. like his his shows are about making a tv show that you watch for 12 weeks and you you know and millions love it and all that and it, it, yes, there is music, but it's not really about music. You know, it's not, it's not the same thing. Um, and yeah, I, I like what you say about that. You know, there's <laughs> some of the most exciting performers or most exciting disruptive drag artists are people who are far too chaotic for television or far too in, indecent for television or or outrageous or inconsistent you know or just Um, don't have aren't in the the right drag column to be able to compete in that thing i mean i mean to take some uk i mean somebody like johnny woo for example i love johnny right like what the fuck would they do with johnny woo on on drag race you know um so you know there's there's a whole vast range of, of drag out there um and you know, just one, you know, a, a fairly narrow column of that drag, you know, expanse is represented on the TV show, which is absolutely fine. Um, a, it only becomes an issue when people think that that is the only kind of drag that's acceptable or the only kind of drag that's, you know, useful or, or, or good or whatever. You used, you know? you used the, uh, the word defanged, which is, which is an interesting word. So because there, I mean, there was the panty bliss of your younger years who was performing in Japan before the surveillance culture that we have now of everyone's, every performance is on an Instagram story somewhere. And, and I think it was in the nineties that you were first, first performing in shows out in, was it Tokyo that you were based? Yeah. Yeah. Tokyo. Yeah. And 
Whereas now, I mean, you're a, you're a national treasure in Ireland. Uh, you know, you you you're on television frequently. Do you find that there are opinions or jokes or things that you'd like to say, but because you've taken on a slightly different role, you have to reconsider or think differently about how to put your act or your humor forward? Um, kind of. I mean, it's something that I've struggled with hugely at times because. Um, you know, like I said, I got into drag because it's very punk and transgressive and fuck you. Um, but over the years, um, you know, um, how I'm viewed has been, you know, has changed dramatically. Um, and, and so now, you know, anything I said, people take everything I say very seriously. And that is a problem if you're a drag queen. <laughs> Um, right. Yeah. I, quite so I do have to be much more conscious of what I'm saying, where I'm saying it, when I'm saying it and so on. Um, and, and I've struggled with that a bit. Like, you know, can you still be a transgressive, you know, gender discombobulating, um, nutty queen and be on the cover of the Radio Times? You know, like it, it, it's, it's a funny one. And, and, and there is a responsibility that goes along with it, too, you know, um, so yeah, I, I, I've definitely tried to answer that question for myself. Um, I'm not always sure I've handled it exactly successfully, but in general, um, I have different hats for different, you know, things. If I'm, you know, doing something that's, you know, obviously serious and all of that, and you know, um, and depending on the audience, I do interact differently. Um, what sort of save, you know, sort of saves my soul in a way is I sort of made a pretty conscious decision that when it comes to my live theater shows um, that I, I don't really edit. I, I figure if you're paying uh, for a ticket to come and see me, you should know what to expect in a way. And yeah. so I, am, I tried to be fully um, you know, unfiltered myself um, when it comes to the live sh shows. Um, you know, I, I mean, there are times when even that can be a little difficult, but. Um, in general, that's how uh, my attitude to it. Um, and also, you know, I, you know I, I, when I was younger, when I was doing things that even if I wanted to, I would really be like, I'm 53, you know, like when I was, you know, in my early 20s, like, you know, I first became notorious around, you know, in Ireland, because I used to do these shows where I'm pulling things out of my ass and stuff. Like, and, and, and you know, even if I wanted to, I, you know, I'm, I'm not... You know, at my age, it would just be unbecoming and unseemly. So, um, <laughs> you know, Panty has grown up too, you know. You know, when I was in my 20s, you know, I was happy to neck a load of ecstasy and run around a club for the night and, and all of that. I absolutely cannot. I do not want to be doing that now. So, you know, things change. Um, Panty has grown up too. Um, you know, I mean... A lot of performers... Well, just in part of the panty is because, you know, I was wore tiny little mini skirts and my knickers were always being flashed as you ran around. You know, now, you know, 53-year-old panty is not wearing the same outfit. So, um, you know, yeah, I've, I've adapted. Um, and as I, you know, party because it's an age thing and party because my role in a way has changed. So I really like your incarnation of the of the most sort of recent phase i really like that um i'm trying to think who to compare you to you've got this this, this sort of american talk show host kind of attire you know a nice 
civilized dress, maybe three quarter length, great hair, um, quite morning television. And I think, but but you obviously you always always got a cinched waist. You always look fantastic. Um, I was thinking about that. There's something I think some comedians do when they get when as they age, because comedians are, can be quite. Um, I don't know. There's something quite loose cannon about a great comedian when they're young. But I think if people like Billy Connolly, who almost become like wizardly and wise old sages, like the creative energy, they're still creative, but they become so much clearer in their aim. And um, that's something that I think that's happened with RuPaul as well. And I'm not like I I, I don't watch Drag Race. I don't, I'm not a big follower of RuPaul. But when I catch him, I, I think there is something of the elder statesman that's come upon him and he definitely wasn't like that in in the 90s you know he was oh, it makes me was laugh the one running around the club on eckies well when i see the show sometimes it makes me laugh when you know he's demanding them all um you know not have their asian dresses and be all very glamazon and i'm thinking but you were in your 20s you were running around with a bit of lipstick and half a wig glued to your bald head like you know um yeah you know so age you know Drag queens are, are very much, you know, the, the line, as you know, between the, the drag and the performer, the performance and the performer is very blurred anyway. So um, so the queen ages too and goes through different phases in their lives and all of that. So, um, you know, and good. <laughs> There's a great bit in your Soho Theatre show. I was watching it a few weeks ago, uh, like a, a fortnight ago or something um, after a gig. And it's, you're talking about the phenomenon of, and here's a word that I know we have to be careful using now, but you talk about the phenomenon of the tranny chaser. Um, And you're telling, sort of making humorous, it's a humorous story, um, but that, you know, being a drag queen, that you've had a lot of male interest in the past or perhaps in the present. Um, And of course that makes for great anecdotal amusing stories but I was thinking that's probably what is that one of those things where you think right here is a term that's now perhaps contentious with younger audiences Um, because there's an audience of people who yeah yeah. um that actual part of the show like became you know became something I had struggled with a lot of the time um it does that particular word isn't very representative of the full conversation around this kind of thing because um, that word had a very different connotation on this side of the Atlantic than it did on the other side. 100%. On the other side of the Atlantic, it's never had any sort of an affectionate non, term, yeah. non-offensive usage. Whereas, you know, um, here, um, you know, when I was coming up, it was a fully acceptable word used by, you know, drag queens, the trans community, transvestites. Yeah. And, and we would all gather in the... Uh, well, I have here um, somewhere in this <laughs> at home, um, like a photocopied zine from the late '90s, around 2000, maybe, um, and it's this the very first issue of a local um, Dublin trans uh, community zine, um, you know, mm-hmm. photocopy, very old school, and on the inside front cover they have a glossary of terms for people who, who might, you know, and the fourth word on the glossary is the t word and it mm. explains it as the 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 all-inclusive word that um is an umbrella term for all of the people who get thrown into the same basket by the outside world yeah. so bad queens yeah, yeah, yeah. Best dites, you know, trans women um and that is very much how we used it 
you know, for, for a long time. Um, so, you know, originally in the back in the nineties or nothing, something, uh, there was no problem or issue that were, were in this side of the line. And, and I resisted the change because to me, we're, we, we were losing something. There, not, there now is no umbrella term for all the people who mm-hmm. get lumped in together by much of the outside world. And there is a kind of a sisterhood. And especially, you know, in the times when I was coming up, you know, very many trans women, because there was no internet and all that, they came to their identity much later in life. And that often um, involved, you know, going hang around gay bars for a while, then, then getting into drag and then, you know, coming to their trans identity. And so there was very much a sisterhood feeling. Um, and, you know, and I don't know we about to, Purdue, but here, the, the, tra- the transvestite community would always come to the gay bars too. So, you know, yes, this kind of nuttery going on. And, and, and there isn't a word for that anymore, um, which, I, which is- Well, that's the difference I mean, between us and the States. We well, had, you, have to you know, accept, in accept, Sorry, you have to accept that people's perceptions of words change. And the they younger do, yeah. community here even have learned from the internet and interacting with, you know, American theory and all of that, um, that it's simply a slur. And so, yeah, you know, I, I lost the battle. It has become a slur. So, and so in that show, yeah. though, it's very hard to tell that story because there's no other, I couldn't yeah. think of another replacement word, you know, and I tried tea chaser, this kind of thing, um, but half the audience would just look blankly. They didn't, you know, understand uh you know so um so so that was a case where i hope and of course at that recording um the one for solo theater i mean that i'm gonna say that's like six years or seven years ago so yeah i think that it might be. Six or seven years you know that it, yeah. it's become even more problematic so i was sort of i hoped in that context that you know in the context of the whole show and everything that people understood um you, you know where i was coming from um uh, and nobody ever came up and complained to me. I was I think you know, if you sit through that whole show, you you understand the context. You know, um, yeah. But now I think I, you know I I really don't know if I would be able to because there are people who just you know they've only ever known that to be a slur word. They're, you know, I'm now of a generation. I, you know, I remember. I remember an American queen who's a really good friend of mine called Delighted to Be Here was over in London visiting. She would come and do shows and she's from North Carolina. So, you know, quite a a Republican corner of America, although she lived in New York. Anyway, she would come and she said that what she found so interesting about we had the night tranny shack here in London. And she was like that all the the trans girls the 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 transvestites the drag queens would all be at the same watering hole and she was like that is not how it is in any city i go to in the states to gig mm-hmm. you know the, the actually there's a divide that the drag queens aren't really part of the same mix and so for us the you know i think it's <laughs> at some point in the future there might be a slight reckoning where young people realize that there's been a kind of american cultural dominance of the discourse around certain things and you're right like if young people have only associated certain terms to be negative because that's what they're reading the bulk of american media's interpretation then the words will change and look we can we can yeah. adapt the way we communicate yeah. with each other we do that all the time so you know that's, it's just sort of um practical rather than ideological in the sense that the internet has changed everything and now mm-hmm. um you know young trans people tend to come to their trans identity much younger and much earlier because mm-hmm. the internet is there and they're able to connect with other young trans people immediately, um, you know, find mm-hmm. out about trans identities and all that stuff in a way that just simply wasn't possible pre-internet. 
And so the, yeah. the, the sort of the, the time period of the gray area where, you know, drag queens and transvestites and trans women were all just, you know, hanging out in the same gay bar, you know, that yeah. time period is kind of over. So the world has changed, you know, and there's good things and, you know, bad things to any, any change. And, and of course, in general, that is a good change because trans people come to their identities much earlier and don't have to have this long, you know, period of searching for information about themselves and you know who they might be and all that. Um, but does it mean that there's sort of more of a disconnect now between, um, you know, between us, you know, different groups um, that used to have a kind of a sisterly bond? Yeah, that has definitely been weakened because of that. And, and, and I personally, of course, sort of miss that. But it's that challenge that we have in each new again it's like new phases of of time and of like generations where we need to find new ways to connect and be you know connected and empathetic and well, and for me as a lover of one of the other things that i find very interesting about all these conversations is um you know nowadays um you know gender has become a very serious issue um, and obviously for trans people, it is a very serious subject. Um, and so it's treated very, for the most part, you know, with a sort of a, you know, seriousness all the time. Whereas mm. for me, of course, one of the great things, one of the great beauties, one of the best fun part of being a drag queen was getting to not treat gender seriously. Um, to just say, I don't give a fuck. Um, yeah, to play with gender and all of that, and um, and and I think that is one of the great joys of, of being a drag queen. Um, yeah, not everybody um is lucky enough to be able to do that. Um, but you know, for me, that has always been one of the great joys about drag. You know, I don't care if somebody calls me he or she. And, you know, um, I don't care if you call me Panty or Rory. Um. You know, when I'm out of drag or whatever, um, I've that's always been one of the great joys of it. And, and, and do, I hope there'll come a time when everybody can experience more of that joy and not have to take it so seriously. Um, you know, I think drag queens are lucky that way. You're quite comfortable, it seems, being um, you'll you'll represent yourself in an interview on on TV sometimes in full drag as panty, but you'll also do an interview. You know, out of drag, it's Rory. I wonder, is there a choice in that, or is it some days it's like, right, I will do the interview, but I don't have time because I'm coming straight after this. And what, what do, do you, what, how do you make the decision? Um, you know, there was a time when I never ever wanted to do anything as Rory ever. Um, that partly changed because I it had to, um, especially when I was getting into kind of legal troubles and all of that. And I mean, you know, as discussions became much more serious, um, sometimes. Sort of necessary, but also, um, yeah, I'm lazy. Um, every time someone asks you to do something in drag, you know, you have to add in a number of extra hours, you know, the, 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 yeah. the prep and the getting out. And, and you know, once you're in drag, you're practically disabled and you have to get a taxis everywhere <laughs> and all, you know, whatever, all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, there's like, you know, just a laziness about it. Like, you know, if there were, if there was the magic makeup drag get ready boost that you could just step into and press a button and you're done you know i would still do almost nothing as rory you know uh, panty's more fun she's more colorful uh, she's designed yeah. public consumption in a way that rory just isn't yeah. um 
Um, and as I get older, God, I'm kind of, I don't want to sound like such an old crotchety old um, crone the whole time, but, you know, drag it <laughs> more physically demanding as you get older. Um, uh-huh. It just gets more tiring, more exhausting, you know, all of that stuff. Like, there's absolutely no way I'm going to be running around a nightclub all night anymore in drag just because I, you know, now. Um, so for all of those reasons, um, you know, I, I end up doing more Rory things and, you know, you know, I've only. Panted it. Well, I. I... Panted it what, sorry? No, you, you just reminded me of something when you're saying about running around nightclubs. Did you have this as well? Because during the pandemic, even if I had to get in drag for a Zoom, you know, corporate booking or something, I wasn't wearing heels. So when we came back from the pandemic, my, like my leg, my muscles that you need to walk in heels had just withered away. So I was like going to brunch gigs and getting started doing shows again. And I was like, fuck me, I can hardly walk. It well, was like crazy. For me, it was, you know, I really piled on the lockdown pounds. Um, and you, 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 in passing, or said you said, "Oh, Pantyhose is great, and her waist is always cinched." Not at the moment, bitch. Um, I am <laughs> constantly working the very forgiving caftan, you know, these days. Um, so, because at my age, young queen, it takes a lot to get rid of the weight. I put it on, so I'm struggling. But um, you just that sort of stuff. Like I, the thought of getting into a corset nowadays. So. Um, I've become very lazy in those ways. So um, while I'm carrying these extra pounds, you're going to fuck off with your corset. Give me that giant coloured kaftan bag. (laughs) So if anyone is uh, in Dublin or over the summer or or just ever, um, they must pop into your bar, a panty bar, which is right smack in the centre, just by the river. Um, And how, how, how is business? Are like things back to normal now in Dublin? Yes, thank God, business is great. Um, Good. You know, we had a much longer and more extended lockdown than you guys did. I mean, we were essentially I saw that years, and we were fully closed for eighteen months or something. A couple of uh, yeah. you know, false starts, um, and then we had about six months where we were only allowed to serve outside um, onto the street. Um, thankfully, that coincided with the summer, and the weather was great, and so it was all good. Um, but since we've been fully back. Um, yeah, it's been gangbusters. The weekends are crazy. There's still a lot of pent up demand and all of that. Um, and Panty Bar is 15 years old. So, um, you know, like I, 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 you know, I'll never complain about it because, um, you know, half the staff have been there 13, 14, 15 years. It runs itself. It probably runs more smoothly when I'm not there. I still get to go off and do my little <laughs> things and not have to worry about it too much. Um, so, yeah, it's great. Um, no complaints about that. And finally, um, you also, since this is a podcast, you have your own podcast, The Panty Personals, where it looks like you're interviewing only musicians. So, and all Irish traditional musicians, is that right? Well, not all traditional, um, all sorts. I had a long running radio show here that was very much involved in, um, uh, you know, there was always musical performance and all that. And so when I went to do, you know, a podcast, um, decided to just focus on that. Um, but uh, that's ongoing. And actually we're um, thinking of beginning to have non-musical guests. So we'll see. Um, you know, um, it's a, I don't know. I've been doing it a long time. I was going to say, you, 
you might run out of musicians but actually not in ireland because every time i come to dublin i end up around a piano with a bunch of old irish butchers and bakers and every single one of them can sing and it's crazy everyone in ireland can sing yeah there's no shortage of musicians here so that would never be an issue but um it's just you know it's a lot of hassle to record music music and live music for things like podcasts um so that's why I mean, maybe we can find some non-musical guests. Yeah. Well, Panty, thank you so much for joining us for uh, the Vanity Project. This is our second season, so we've we're really thrilled with all the guests that have come on, and you've just been fabulous. I really, really respect uh, you as a as an artist and as a spokesperson for for all of us gays and queers. So I wish you all the best, and hopefully, I'll be in Dublin. I'll come and say hello at some point um, over the coming months. Okay, and I, uh, I won't listen back, so feel free to say anything about me in your gossip with Denim. That's right, it's coming up with Queen's Corner with the lovely Denim Spur. <laughs> Bye. So it's Queen's Corner, and by now you all know this is the little segment we stick on to the end of a podcast where I chat with usually a drag queen, but not always. We have sometimes called DJs, nightlife characters, people who I have had many drinks with in the past. Today we have the lovely Denim Spur, who's actually coming to us all the way from Berlin. You've got a big weekend coming up, haven't you? Yeah, um, it seems like it's already lasted forever because what am I on? I'm now been awake for... Um, uh, 30, 32 hours because of uh, flights and uh, <laughs> and hotel checking ins and this. Um, so I'm looking forward to sleeping after this. <laughs> what you need to do is make sure that you you have some magnesium because right. you'll need that in Berlin. And magnesium. also do, don't know <laughs> get some nice magnesium to keep right. your muscles su- supple. Okay. And also don't. Um, <laughs> don't keep getting distracted by the wall it's actually quite a boring tourist attraction and it oh, pops up everywhere it. you go we literally yeah. went day before we we couldn't check in straight away and so we went literally to uh to checkpoint charlie and saw the wall um but now we've seen the wall so um we'll you've got it out the way now it, now it's just <laughs> nightlife yeah um so panty bliss i was so happy when she said she'd come on and chat because i think she's like she's just probably the, our most eloquent voice within drag I mean, I I feel ashamed that I didn't know of of her. Um, but yeah. uh, hearing her speak was incredible um, because she was so eloquent and talked about so many things that I feel very strongly about. Um, yeah, I was really kind of blown away by how kind of uh, forthright she was. Yeah, it's great when someone. I think that people have such a strong sense of goodwill towards Panty. So there's a lot of trust from like Joe Public, from the gay community, from the little old mammies that she was talking about. And that's like, you, you just need that if you want to go around and try and encourage change. You need people to trust you. So like, good for her. Yeah, the whole kind of like idea of change as well, I think is, um, I, was kind of, I was kind of sat there thinking about how, how kind of the whole idea of drag being move towards a more mainstream uh, audience uh, that w- was talked about. Um, I found that's really interesting because that is kind of what what my show does is that it, yeah. it is about crossing that that boundary, but still remaining radical at its core. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's so important. And I really kind of 
admired um, Panty for kind of, kind of, kind of sticking to that um, because I think yeah, radical art is so important. So you have been producing a show for a while now. That's the hmm. Disney Snatch Game, and now it's here in London. Um, that people can get tickets for that coming up. But specifically, it takes the idea of celebrity impersonation or character impersonation, and you'll take some performers who are drag performers and, and they've got the challenge of having to become, you know, uh, famous characters that we know. So somebody's maybe got to be Aladdin from, the, from, from Aladdin or somebody's got to be um, a character from a different film. And it sets a challenge for creatives, but obviously is hilarious for the audience. So tell me how it's all been going. You've got one coming up as well. We have, yes. I mean, we're now. This will be the sixth one we've done. Um, the first one we did before lockdown, just before lockdown. Um, it was supposed to be kind of a. We do the show in collaboration, I should say, with Ones with Oasis, who are an HIV, HIV charity. Um, and that's been the get-go from the beginning. It, the original show was just a one-off as a fundraiser for them. Um, and uh, that was just amazing. We It was a kind of huge event. We had like something ridiculous, like eight acts on uh, two uh, guests. We had a a singer halfway through we had mini games going it was it was crazy um but uh talking about kind of radical uh art so maintaining the kind of political nature of the drag uh performance that was when i really saw that that working at its best and really the show sings the most when it it's not afraid of being that political voice um I, the winner of that one was richard angie who that was the very first performance which Genji had ever done and they've gone on to be super successful they're in death drop now um and uh they're, they're rich and just fantastic and what what they did was they used Boris Johnson and Prince John from Robin Hood in a kind of mashup um performance which was just fucking incredible excuse my French or my German whichever way <laughs> um yeah <laughs> so yeah I, I think that I I love the fact that the show does that. And that's really the point of it, because there's no reason really why uh, in RuPaul's uh, Snatch Game that the characters shouldn't do Disney characters. The only reason they don't is because the brand is too afraid of getting sued um, because it's parody. Well, yeah. You know. And also, do you know, I, I know a bit of Inside Agatha. Oh, give me a, a, friend, <laughs> a friend of mine who who was planning to do Princess Diana for Snatch Game. Do you know this right. story? Uh, this is ringing um, a bell. So I think yeah, they did on. They did a fantastic Princess Diana in their audition tape. Mm -hmm. And RuPaul themselves uh, said, wow, like that's who I want on the show. And then the BBC being the BBC, were like, we can't really let you do, take the piss out of Princess Diana on, on, on the BBC. Yeah, because all the jokes will be about, you know, that Prince Philip had finished off and whatever else. And, you know, I think it's one of those things, if you were, if that show were over at Channel 5 or something, so, you know, one of the messy channels, it yeah. might be different. <laughs> Channel 4, which was sadly we might be losing, uh, this being kind of bastion of um, right. kind of alternative, uh, yet state-owned. Uh, state um, uh, I know. Um, and I can't decide, I can't decide what, I know, like, uh, it's one of those things where there's a lot of noise around the subject, 
And I, I'm instinctively like, do we, should we be getting rid of assets that we have? Like, should we? And Film 4 back in the day made some of my favorite movies and mm. Channel 4 has been a great broadcaster. But I can't tell. I'm like, will, will this, will, ha, will it be a disaster? Will it be terrible? I mean, all these shows that well, we knows, watch now right. that come from the big streaming platforms are like, uh, yes. It could be, it could be wonderful. But my thing is, it's not broke. So what, why? Right. Uh, that's yeah. the, if there was a problem with that, but cool, privatize it, privatize the shit out of it, and then it'll be great. Um, uh, but it isn't, it's it works really well as it is. Um, it fe- feeds itself, it funds itself. So, why change it? Um, that, that it feels like that's a purely ide- ideological statement that um, the government is making just because they don't yeah. like funded things. Um, yeah, you're um. Your Disney Snatch game coming up on May the 4th is a Star Wars themed event. Now, this was an event that I was hoping to perform in as some listeners will find this ridiculous. I was going to be performing as Master Yoda. (laughs) And I I honestly was looking forward to it so much because um, it was reminding me of back when I used to do shows at her upstairs and I used to judge all the drag competitions there. And every week these queens would have different challenges and like, they had to pull on all their creative resources it was amazing and really chaotic and really fun whereas my drag usually is like i have a show that's quite uh it's it's flexible it changes but it's got a very core dynamic and i have a core aesthetic so sometimes i don't have an excuse to do something outside of the box um very sadly i won't be able to perform uh, in that one and uh, miserable about that I know. And look, honestly, I'm, I am gutted because it would be so much fun. It's just a rare, a rare moment where I bit off more than I could chew, could chew. And I really wanted to, to do it uh, well. But I understand that the lineup is still fabulous and people can go and see the event at the two brewers um, for a guaranteed cackle. Like it's going to be extremely, you know, funny enough, Denim, I might actually be able to come and watch. Oh, so that'd be amazing. Um, yeah, and hopefully we'll get you back into it because we're doing them every three months now. We've kind of got a regular slot. Yeah. Um, so we would love to have you uh, a future one um, if if you're a bit less busy. Um, that would be yeah. fabulous. Oh, 100%. And um, it raises money and awareness for the Wandsworth Oasis. So if you're down in Clapham, you'll know the Wandsworth Oasis is an HIV charity. There are people living with HIV who could still benefit from the support of some charities in large part for the work that they can do helping out communities, like helping people feel a sense of community and not be left behind. And it's a really community project. It's really community focused in many ways. We actually did our first uh, Manchester um, uh, edition recently. And I was really kind of, it was an interesting experience because for the first time, the audience was straight white women. Um, uh, And it felt all of a sudden like it wasn't the community project that it often, in London, it always is. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know why why that was. What what it, it, in a way the show wants to be able to reach those audiences whilst retaining its community feel at the same time, and kind of bridging that gap is sometimes a little bit tricky. Um, and so it's still kind of working it's, out how it, you know. I think is that um, sometimes I think that might be a Manchester thing because I'm mm-hmm. I'm actually in Manchester tonight doing a show, oh, and because the way the vil- the village is laid out, um, and people have. People have complained, you'll hear local Manchester people will complain that there are periods where 
Canal Street has become a hen party destination. Mm, yeah. And sometimes, you know, the bars want the business. And so then suddenly you find yourself in a gay bar where like 70% of the punters are actually straight women. And I think it used to be more of a, an issue than it is now. I think they've worked out a good balance to keep that sense of community identity. But I wonder if when you take the show up there, um, there will be loads of uh, straight women who love going and seeing the drag queens on Canal Street and they go, oh, I'm definitely going to this Disney Snatch game. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, we, that's kind of what we we had. And I think because of the nature of it, uh, straight women at home have watched RuPaul, they've watched Disney. So it's two of those things that they know and love in the same room. Um, so it's I see the appeal and I'm 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 that's fantastic that that is the case that we live in a world where that is the progress has been made that that is now how it is um uh what i guess i was listening to panty as well and talking about this was were the acts a little bit um moderating the way in which they presented themselves uh, and their acts um rather than being kind of this radical uh thing and i i think that we still as a maybe as a community need to be better at kind of just embracing being like, fuck it. You might not be the audience I'm used to, but I'm going to be as fucking radical as I always am. Um, sorry, I keep swearing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, if you can definitely swear on this podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I think it's a, it's a, a journey and I'm looking forward to taking the show back to Manchester at some point. Um, it's uh, just, yeah, uh, working out how to also want to maintain the community aspect as much as I can. Because like I say, we support the community. It's a charity led and sponsored event. So it wants to be for the community um, as well as reaching a new community. So um, yeah, working out how that works. Well, we'll make sure that we post the links to tickets and upcoming events in the uh, description of these podcasts. If that's something that we do, I say this, I don't, uh, my <laughs> producer might, might be shaking his head. I don't know. But anyway, they will be able to Google it. They'll be able to Google the Disney Snatch Game and that's Disney spelled D-I-S-N-A-Y um, so that when people are looking for it, they can find out more. Thank you so much for joining us in Queen's Corner today on The Vanity Project. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.